It be too late to alter course, matey. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove. And mark well me words, matey. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis from scottartis.com. And I'm Heather Artis from blackpearlminute.com. Thanks for joining us for our weekend bonus. We just couldn't stay away from your homes. We're like stalkers and we just had to come in on Sundays. Uninvited, really. (laughs) We just made it happen. So this is the Dead Men Tell No Tales review episode. So that's where you're at if you were wondering. You're actually in your homes probably or, well, on the road with your mobile device these days. Not having to sit next to that giant radio (laughs) that's the size of (laughs) an old school television set. Thousand pounder. You can actually do this stuff mobile now. Ah, the world we live in. Just like Jack Sparrow. It's a spoiler-laden show where we are plundering the latest film in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Our thoughts, opinions... Answers to listeners' questions, maybe, say maybe, because maybe we'll cover some of that while we talk about it, and maybe asking our own questions, so to speak, or questions that popped up after watching the movie, and those questions that still have us wondering, even after seeing the movie for a second time. What the? What the? Is that your question? That's So that's your placeholder? Yeah. What the? (laughs) Exactly. We started this conversation with our fellow podcast colleagues Brady and Kyle on Saturday over at Pele Media. We had a great time asking questions and Monday morning quarterbacking the film, things we liked and would have liked to have seen, but it didn't end there. We jumped head on into all kinds of Pirates of the Caribbean talk from rides to movies to fun facts. And I know it's out of character for me, but I may have blamed Heather as the reason for the rum being gone on that show. I don't remember. I may have. It's possible. You can oh, you ch- did. Are you sure about oh, that? Oh, yeah. It doesn't, it's really out of character for me to blame you for something. Yeah. So I doubt that I did, but it is possible. I'm not saying it could have been like some kind of lucid dream or something, maybe. Maybe that's what it was. Mm, I don't think so. You can check out that special Patreon bonus episode at patreon.com slash Media. Go ahead and give it a listen if you want to hear parts of the Caribbean talk. And to jump in with Pele Media and the great content that they're creating there. So make it so. That was my Star Trek reference. So make it so. So make it so. Jean-Luc Picard, 1987. That's a direct quote. (laughs) (laughs) I think we are ready to dive into the review. And for any of you wanting to avoid spoilers, it really is best if you walk the plank. Walk the plank. Because Heather has no self-control and she is bound to drop notes on all aspects of the movie. You got that right. And being that I don't want to make her feel bad, I will probably go ahead and join her in the free talking party. Or free talking antics. Bet you give out more spoilers than I do. How dare you? Ah! Dare you say something <laughs> like that. And if I did, it was only to make sure and cover your egregious errors uh-huh. that I would do that. Because I don't want that light shining on you. I'm trying to reduce the amount of hate mail you get. Just because that's the kind of person I am. A yeah. nice person. Yeah. So you have been warned. It's spoiler time. It's Dead Men Tell No Tales. <laughs> Thanks for that intro there. The intro music. Our Foley artist. 
We've both seen the movie twice now, and for me, I think I enjoyed the film more the second time than I actually did the first time. What are you talking about? I've seen it like four times. <laughs> of course you have. You're like somebody who's gone out and seen Star Wars like 15 times. You got that right. There's nothing wrong with that. Except the movie theater is wondering why you're bathing in their restroom. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a real pirate in here. We can smell it. <laughs> Shiver me timbers. That's not to say I didn't like it the first time. I may have ruffled a few feathers, and Heather is probably one of those, when we talked about our reactions to the movie after seeing the first one, or first time, I should say. But I think I stick to much of what I said. I preface that just so I don't get a verbal beatdown. And for all you out there who can see my wink, it's really a physical beatdown that I'll get in the studio here. It's a good swashbuckler. There's humor-filled adventure, and it brings back... Obviously, mega pop icon Jack Sparrow and the meshing of a pirate movie with a supernatural movie. There are things I liked about it, things I wasn't quite sold on. And as I recall, I've said multiple times things that I went, hmm. Hmm. It kind of left me wondering some of those things. Left you with questions? Exactly. Left me with questions or going, man, maybe they should have changed that up a bit. The main idea is that I'm really just kind of torn on things and it's maybe at this some level I was hoping for a complete return to the Black Pearl. And this is some stuff that we mentioned in the reaction and then on our stint on Pele Media talking about Pirates of the Caribbean and Dead Men Tell No Tales. So I think that that's like that return to the original form is really what I wanted. And I need to stress form and not format. I really look at these in separate ways. Format is following the same plot elements, story, character... Well, character development, maybe. And form is the great stuff that made us all fall in love with Pirates of the Caribbean. That movie that broke the rules on swashbuckler adventure movies by taking a genre and giving it a skeleton twist. Plus the addition of a unique, keep us guessing character, Jack Sparrow. And others, like Barbosa and stuff like that. That's not something we have really seen before when you look at swashbucklers, is to kind of have that mix on that. Unless you really want to talk Jason and the Argonauts or Sinbad classic movies from the 1960s. I don't want to talk those movies. What? How is that possible? (laughs) Stop motion, Ray Harryhausen. That's some good stuff there. Yes, it is. But I can't talk those movies. It's almost as realistic as the CGI effects that they have nowadays. Almost. Almost. Not quite, but almost. You're going, man, that that skeleton looks really real. (laughs) I don't know why you're laughing at that. And they tackle this transition to a new generation of characters, but I also want to recognize the old ones like Jack Sparrow. I'm not sure I really got that. And this actually, I may, this may be really my fault. And I'm going to admit it. Unlike Heather, I will admit that this could be my fault for for looking at it like this. Because I completely agree that we really do need some character development and character growth. But sometimes I just don't want that. I admit it. Heather's going to laugh. She knows it's true. I still want Sheldon, Raj, Howard, and Leonard to be the nerds. They are. The nerds they were in seasons one and two of The Big Bang Theory. That's where the comedy was and how it differentiated itself from other sitcoms. They weren't together with, well, women. (laughs) They were striving to get women. People grow. I hate growth. Personal growth. Get the hell out of here. I want my sitcoms to be stagnant (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't that get boring i want stagnation well if you can't come up with other jokes if you're telling the same jokes but you know what hey they had to move along how dare they i said i want stagnation i want that i want that 
wetland, that algae-filled pond that has now become so covered in just nasty growth because of stagnation. Scott wants to stay in the 80s forever. The, what do you mean the 80s? I don't Who said know. It sounded good. That was a, that was a... I was so trying to come up with an 80s sitcom theme song in my head, and I just failed miserably. So I was going to... childhood days. I was just going to break out singing it, but... stay in those days forever. But it's not that. I mean, Big Bang is new, but it's just that... I know. I like the characters of who they are. And do I want to see them grow for good or for worse or for better or for worse? Not always. You have to. I don't go to sitcoms... To get personal growth. I go there to take me out of the real world for a little bit so I don't have to reflect on it. Take me to that world where I can go, you know what? I get that joke. And I really do get it. It's not because I haven't. It's because I've lived it. You know, that's no. what I want. And Heather calls me a robot. Yeah. As a robot, my artificial intelligence is not that up to speed. And therefore, I just like in that kind of nice my coding says stay here, and that's where I want it. So as I was saying with the Big Bang, that's where the nerd goldmine was. And maybe I related to it to a small point, just maybe. That's what I'm saying with the Jack character change or evolution, that maybe that's why I wanted it to stay the same. Or I wanted to recognize him completely from where we were. Or maybe even completely back to the Curse of the Black Pearl. Life's changed for Jack, though. You can't go all the way back to the Curse of Black Pearl because life's changed. He's had different adventures. He's been down on his luck. You can't keep him the same. You can't keep a good man down? Is that what you're saying? But now he's had a beatdown. Because much of what my lead-up to was, is you're right, in this whole lead-up to Jack Sparrow is what I was kind of talking about, so we can kind of kick the review thing off going with Jack Sparrow. Is Jack was a different person. I mean, he's a different pirate than he was in the other films. He was always a lovable character with unique mannerisms, someone who was always cheating and procrastinating death, and always had a plan or a scheme in the works. That's what made him the incredible pop icon he is today. But what we got was someone who was a bit more bumbling and definitely drunk. Right. I didn't get the feeling he had a plan at the ready or a scheme to fit any situation that he had in the past. But, and this is really the big but. Are you? Is that Johnny Depp always delivers a good performance. Right. But it's more in the beginning that he doesn't have a plan. And he's he's that's more true. drunk. And he's, it, that's more the beginning. But if you look farther into the movie, he has plans. That's true. And even Barbosa at one point in time says to him that this is what we do, right? You know, as far as a plan ahead, because he knows Johnny's always got, or not Johnny, but um, Jack always has, he's always got these plans and he's always thinking two steps ahead of everyone else. And as you get more into the movie after that beginning where he's completely drunk on his butt, after you get past that, you start, start seeing the more Jack Sparrow that we used to see than... In the very beginning of the movie. And unfortunately, that beginning of the movie when he's really drunk, we're not seeing that. And that's what we remember when we watch the movie, you know? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Because that's the big reveal of Jack Sparrow coming back to us is all of a sudden he's this drunkard. Yeah. But I think it's also, I mean, he does come back to some of his form. And we see that when he is trying to trick Karina into giving up the map and that they're going to keel haul. Henry Turner. Right. And then she, he basically tricks her. 
So, I mean, he does have some plans and he's doing some of that stuff. And and I get it that there is an evolution to his character. I mean, it really is summed up with the quote from Gibbs. And I think this is what I tend to forget when I see it because I really wanted like that Curse of the Black Pearl. Right. Sparrow. At least I think it was Gibbs who said, you've lost your luck, you've lost your ship, and now you've lost your crew. Yeah. I think that may have been Gibbs that said that right when he was I on the so. dying goal. Yeah. And the plot actually revolves around a beat down Jack because after his crew leave him, he gives up the famed compass for a bottle of rum. That's just not something Jack would typically do, though, unless he was really beat down to give up his prized possession. Right. And I think that was just trying to drum down the the notion that he is completely beat down at this moment. He's just down on his luck. There's nothing left. So he's just... It's almost like he gave up then. Yeah. Because it's an incredible evolution that is the result of life occurrences, like you said. Yeah, I get that. And maybe this is actually where it succeeds, and I'm giving it fault for that, but maybe this is where the movie actually succeeds, because perhaps this is more fitting with reality, Mm -hmm. that you have that. You have somebody who was riding the waves and riding high, and then they have the low points. That maybe does fit more with reality than our hero who's always, or maybe he's anti-hero, because he's not really always the exact hero. There's always more of a hero in the films that we have, and whether that's Will Turner, or say in this particular one, like a Karina or a Henry Turner kind of thing. So there's always somebody that plays off that. He's kind of more the anti-hero that floats between, say, light and dark, good and bad. Right. But yeah, maybe it's more fitting with reality. But I really do miss the Curse of the Black Pearl Jack. That was the epitome of Jack. And yeah, maybe that's just me. Okay, maybe I'm. this is a whole Big Bang thing again where I didn't want to see him change. But like I said, maybe it is more fitting of reality that he actually has evolved and he has reacted to things in his life. Whereas Barbosa has reacted to things in his life and he's living high on the hog and it's got gold all around him and all these kind of niceties, if you will, for being a pirate kind of admiral. Right. Whereas Jack has had a lot of, well, yeah, he's just had a lot of bad luck. Well, he's got a ship been- that... It's not even... It's falling apart, for one thing. On land, by the way, not even on the sea. That's true. I mean, it's actually interesting when you look at it from that perspective, because Jack is the one who's almost has this curse right now. Yeah. Jack has been cursed with bad luck. Right. Barbosa is the one who now has a turn of good luck. And so we have kind of a light and dark situation going on where the roles have been reversed. Jack is now cursed, and Barbosa is the one who's not cursed. Right. If you want to look at it really in a broad whole sense and not really getting down into that, because Barbosa is not necessarily that antagonist or that evildoer that he was in Curse of the Black No, Pearl. not at and all. And he has actually evolved quite a bit in the in the film franchise. Besides Murtaugh and Mulroy are afraid of him. Well, that's true. I mean, he does <laughs> break out the blunderbuss when they come in. Instead of telling the band to just quiet down a little bit, he actually fires a blunderbuss into the wall of his own cabin there. Well, it's not. Well, you take a look at this thing. It's just full of bones and skulls. It's not very pretty. They're gold bones and skulls. I think that makes a big difference. And I don't know what you're saying because our studio is full of gold bones. Yeah. Just stacked on top of each other. It's like a catacomb. I was here. I was actually shocked to see Barbosa's ship and all the 
treasure. It was actually on the ship all yeah. over the place. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's weird because, you know, you think pirates, they hide their treasure. You never know if you're going to be, somebody's going to come upon you and try to. You forgot he had a bad experience with caves and well, treasure islands. So he well, needs to take it with him. He's like, I ain't ever going to back to Isla de Muerta. I also did a little research onto the ship. Okay. Okay, because you know this was Blackbeard's ship. Yeah. And Blackbeard always kept his treasures on his ship. Oh, very cool. It was reportedly sailed full of wealth and treasure, plummeted for many ill-fated victims. Huh. So they just kept it on their ship. And all the bones and skulls? Yeah. Because I was going, that's weird. You know, it just doesn't seem... It was everywhere. It wasn't just inside the cabin. It was even outside. Right. And it just didn't seem... Barbosa-like. Yeah. To me, you know, so I was kind of confused when I first seen this. So I had to do a little research. Well, all those bones and skulls were actually victims of Blackbeard. Oh, I see. Gotcha. All Blackbeard's victims. And so that's why it was like that, because it was Blackbeard's shit. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it was just, it was bugging me because it wasn't Barbosa-like. Well, I think that there's been a whole lot of stuff that wasn't Barbosa-like with all the richness and the gold. It's like he really was royalty kind of going yeah. on there. And it, it was like, I was thinking also, okay, you know, he had that curse and it caused them to be so greedy. And then, well, when I seen this ship at first, I'm going, the greed must have stuck with him, you know? <laughs> and he couldn't leave his treasures anywhere. He had to like keep them with him. He is him. a pirate. But then I kind of looked into it a little bit and found out more on the ship and stuff. But you can't see all of that plunder that he has there and not go, you know, you might still be consumed by a little greed right? going on Right, yeah. There. You might be playing a different part in this because you have your minions out there doing a lot of this for you, but you're still floating on that consumed by greed point, if you will. Yeah. I think just some general takes on the film. I know we started to do a breakdown and that's the problem with well, when you do a minute-by-minute minute analysis, yeah. you kind of get involved in some of the minutiae, which we'll probably tackle when we actually get to the movie at some point. Yeah, It's a visually stunning movie, this movie spectacle with crisp special effects. And as a Swashbuckler fan, I really do live for the high seas battles. We get some great warring ship sequences, not to the extent of At World's End with all the big battle that's going right. on or the Maelstrom and all that kind of stuff. But we really, we do get some good sequences of ship fighting, if you want to call it that. We do, but... But it's not over the top. It's not a lot of it, actually. No. My thing was Salazar's ship. I think I would have rather seen a battle among ships than the ship actually eating other ships. Oh, yeah. Hands down. I you know, yeah. I would have rather seen the actual battle, even if it was a short battle. I would have rather seen that than a ship eating ships. Yeah, I think that that would have made... I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to do something different, and right. I give them that. But it does reminisce or have this callback to almost like the arm of the Kraken. That's that yeah. kind of giant squid or something. Because it has that weird kind of movement that it can go down like it's a, a giant tentacle on right. that. And that's what it kind of reminded me of. But I agree. I would have rather have seen more pirate traditional ship battles with yeah. that sequence than ship, yeah, trying to consume or crush another one with its tentacle arm. Because even with a battle, you still have all these ghost pirates yeah. who can, I mean, move like crazy. Yeah. It still would have been an amazing... Well, it would have been a return to more traditional swashbuckler if that's... 
in the traditional pirate movie if it was more battle. Or even more to Curse of the Black Pearl. Yeah. If they actually, you know, all the pirates came onto the ship and battled on the ship rather than the ship just eating another ship. I agree. There is one shot that did stand out as maybe it could have used a little more time being refined or maybe in the special effects computer with supercomputers and calculating machines and all that kind of stuff. Is that refining that is when Barbosa was swinging down the parted waters on the anchor. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't really feel right to me. And it looked like the CGI got a little sloppy or it just didn't fit with the rest of it. It just looked too green screeny or blue screeny for me mm-hmm. for that particular one. But in general, I really do like all the underwater shots. Yeah. I'm always impressed with the underwater shots in the franchise. The, like I said, the visual effects are pretty stunning and seamless. And I thought that that was great. As far as the music, it really is a return to Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. And I think that's to be expected with another Hans Zimmer protege thing going on here. But I will say that it just wasn't as memorable as The Curse of the Black Pearl. And I know I'm probably jumping back all the way to The Curse of the Black Pearl on a lot of this stuff. But to be honest, I'm not sure if any of the other films that their scores actually stand out to me as much as The Curse of the Black Pearl. And I don't know if it's because Curse of the Black Pearl set the bar or we're examining it right now. Or we're, yeah, we're currently <laughs> examining it. And so we're really in depth in Curse of the Black Pearl. But that's not taken away, I think, from any of the other scores or this one. No. I think a lot of those traditional pieces that you hear, because we first heard them in Curse of the Black Pearl. And so that kind of set the stage for us. Because a lot of those pieces are offshoots or use those uh use that kind of as a backbone to build upon for the next scores. And that's what I'm hearing here because... It's like Star Wars. You have the Star Wars theme, and that kind of resonates throughout the Star Wars movies. Kind of hearing the Jack Sparrow theme. Yeah. And it was nice hearing that, and you hear it a lot in this movie. A lot. Yeah, then there's the costuming and makeup. (laughs) What can I say? I mean, I'm always impressed with the fact that everything works out, and it works without standing out in this ridiculous or bad way. And I think that means that it really makes it this seamless integration. It's as far away as... A distraction as you could possibly get. And I think that's what you want in the movie. You don't want to be distracted by the costuming or the clothing and that stuff. You want it to fit the time period so you're not questioning it. And that's what it does here. And I think that it's just a complete success. And that's with the entire franchise. I think it's always been spot on with the costuming. Speaking of costuming and makeup, how about that lady that uh, Jack was going to have to marry? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She was a beaut. <laughs> <laughs> They're scabies and all. <laughs> yeah, Jack. That would have been the curse upon the curse. If That's when his luck started to change. Yeah. Once that happened, then he's like, oh, okay, now his luck is changing. And then it, but then it goes back to everything we're always saying. Jack is rescued by somebody else. Yeah, he always has to be saved by somebody else. And there else. he's saved by Barbosa. And he's also saved by his crew later on. So he he is constantly being saved. He can't ever escape himself. And so he needs that to help him. He always has to have friends around. That's right. Or frenemies. Exactly. So that's why it's important that he does have a crew and he does have people around. Because if he is just the lone Jack, there's no way for him to escape. No. And I think that's the beginning of the movie. He was pretty much alone. He lost his crew he lost everything that he needed, you know, and yeah. then so that's why he gave away the compass. He's just like, I'm done. That's it. 
That's possible, yeah. Now that I got you off track. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I'm trying to just kind of do my general takes on it, and you keep taking us deep into ideas and breakdowns. So there's the chemistry then between Henry Turner and Karina Smith. And this was definitely better the second time for me. It's possible that they actually, and I'm thinking that they may have taken the movie back after my first time seeing it. They reshot the scenes and then they put a new one in. They put a whole new reel in when I went to the theater the second time. Because at first I thought there was a lack of chemistry between the two. But on the second round, I think it may have been, well, maybe I was a little overly critical. But it's not a Will and Elizabeth chemistry thing going on here. And you can take that Will and Elizabeth chemistry from Curse, Dead Man's Chest, and At World's End. Those two mesh and were made for each other. That's what I see. I mean, they could tell you a story with simple looks and glances. Elizabeth and Will. That's not what I'm really getting with Karina and Henry. However, I mean, this is their first meeting, if you will. So, I mean, there is chance to grow and develop, hopefully. And I may fall into a trap of always comparing the two couples. And, you know, sorry to Orlando and Kira for doing that. And that they will always dominate that comparison between, say... Henry and Karina. Seriously, though. I I think you missed that Elizabeth and Will thing. You know what I mean? I think you missed that. Henry and Karina are different people, of course. Yeah. You know, and Karina is a much more headstrong person than Elizabeth. She's a much different character than Elizabeth. And I think that's part of it. She's... You know, her own, I mean, Elizabeth was her own person. She had her own, you know, she was going to go in her own way and she needed to find her own way and her freedom. Karina, she didn't have the family thing behind her. She made it on her own and went to educate, did educate education on her own, you know, that sort of stuff because she didn't have family behind her. But she is such a strong, she's stronger than Elizabeth, I think. Yeah, but just even the actors, Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom, oh, yeah. seem to mesh way better than these two. That's just all I'm saying. And plus, there is a historical buildup. I mean, that you really have, they found each other when they're young. They've obviously grown up together. But yeah. the acting is so superb and just comes together in Curse of the Black Pearl when you see them. Well, and then it extends into the second movie and the third movie. You see that tension that whole time, that sexual tension between them, that love that they have for each other, but they can't have. That's what you get. And I don't really get that between these two characters. Like I said, they just met for the first time, so we don't have that long history. And maybe this gets something back that I mentioned when we first started regarding form versus format. There is a potential link to the format of Curse of the Black Pearl and maybe elements of the other films, too. There is this force trying to push and create and Elizabeth will match together with Karina and Henry. It needs to feel like it was a natural or a naturally developed relationship between Elizabeth and Will. Like we, That's what we had with uh-huh. them. What we got with Elizabeth and Will is that incredible sensation that their relationship was forbidden fruit. And they have been suppressing this for years. And when it finally is unleashed, it was this detonation of an atom bomb kind of deal. You know, right. There was all that tension. In Dead Men Tell No Tales, we don't get that same setup that made the underdog situation desirable or maybe even believable. It would have been better to leave these two in this discovery mode and learning about each other, getting to know each other, as opposed to bringing them together. Maybe, well, maybe you could just bring them together later in Pirates of the Caribbean 6 after they've had some time to be connected. 
that would have upset the kiss, the girl at the end scenario that the writers are always striving for. Because the screenwriter's trick is to leave the kiss to the end, but to build the tension until we as the audience are ready to explode ourselves. There's no tension here. Yeah. Did you feel that way with Henry and Karina, that same way that you felt it with Elizabeth and Will? No, because there was no tension. There was no forbidden within this relationship. It doesn't have to be forbidden necessarily, but that there's at least some kind of attraction growing. And I don't know if we got a lot of that. It wasn't growing. It it, was... Yeah, we didn't have time to build up because I don't think... I think that the movie is more kind of pushing action along than we have some of those down moments in Curse of the Black Pearl. We don't have the below deck on the... What was it? The Interceptor when Uh she's getting bandaged and they're kind of sharing their feelings and about to kiss and then it doesn't happen because there's some other emotional things that come up with the medallion and returning it. And stuff like well, that. We don't get those kinds of moments that are that to that degree in this movie. One of my notes is that the storytelling that was in The Curse of the Black Pearl is not in this movie. That's right. You know, they don't have... It is all action. It's constant, yeah. almost constant action. There's no storytelling in this movie. There's no downtime with people telling each other... We get a little bit of that with Salazar, but not to the degree. Not very little. And it's funny because we're going to, we talk about exposition and some of that's going to be coming up in our next minute, I think on Monday when we actually do the minute breakdown. But Curse of the Black Pearl, as much as screenwriters hate to do exposition, there actually is a lot of exposition in Curse of the Black Pearl, but they do it in such a unique way that you really are enthralled and you don't get bored with it. So tune in tomorrow on Monday and listen to that. We don't get a lot of that. We do no. get some of that with Salazar. Their relationship just kind of felt more rushed than it did Oh yeah, with Elizabeth and Will. And maybe that's because Elizabeth and Will, it wasn't rushed because literally it had been 10 years right. in the making. Whereas this one, they just kind of met and then we're going through this situation that kind of brought them together. Yeah. I'm just wondering if it would have been better had they not rushed it and they just kind of ended it without a need to have a kiss at the end. Yeah. That they just kind of went off and they were going to be together. There was a kindling romance there that was building right. up. Uh, yeah, I agree. But not not so yeah, much. Yeah, not, so, not such a rushed relationship thing. More of a bickering at the f- beginning and maybe yeah. feeling a little better. They didn't really, I mean, they bickered a little, but it was more like a teasing type thing rather than a... Where they're starting off a new partnership of they're going to... Go tame the seas with some of the mythology or something like that. Yeah. So some of the other general takes that I had and some takeaways. I missed Pintel and Rigetti. And although oh, we I did got, too. Although we got Murtaugh and Mulroy. They're not Pintel and Rigetti. I'm glad to see that we did get them back. Yeah. But they don't compare to the characters uh-uh. that Pintel and Rigetti developed. No. Or the Murtaugh and Mulroy from the previous films, actually. More of that growth. Right. But... I mean, yeah, I do love the repartee between them as evidence when they enter to tell Barbosa the bad news about their ships <laughs> yeah. being sunk. So we do get some of that return to form that we've seen with them, and that's good. We also departed from the rather ominous dark openings that have generally set the films in motion, all the films in uh-huh. motion. This one's more comedy. Well, it's not, you're thinking a little bit too far. I'm thinking the, oh. really the right in the beginning thing. So a young Elizabeth, a creepy version of A Pirate's Life for Me. In a burning merchant ship, and then a pirate ship that slips mysteriously into the fog. That's Curse of the Black Pearl right. when it opens. Fog, it's dark. 
and we get this creepy child version of A Pirate's Life for Me. Dead Man's Chest opens up with the arrest of Elizabeth and Will, a broken wedding that is rained out, gibbeted pirates with ravens plucking out eyes. Happy day, everyone. <laughs> At World's End kicks off with a bunch of pirates about to meet a short drop and a sudden stop, including a freaking little kid. Yeah. A kid for crying out loud. And they break into some somber shanty before actually we black out with the scream. But those ropes go. Yeah. Those people die. Then on Stranger Tides, we get a body being fished out of the water and the revelation along a, you know, how you have this kind of carriage going through to the castle area at night. There's torches and then it's a Ponce de Leon reveal kind of moment that, hey, this is the book of Ponce de Leon or the Fountain of Youth kind of stuff. All of these have like kind of a gruesome element to it. Yeah. But Dead Men Tell No Tales hits us with a young Will Turner plunging into the depths to land on the passing Flying Dutchman below so he can see his father. Yeah. It's more of a touching kind of moment oh, than yeah. it has been in the dark because it's this kid wanting to see his father. I mean, yes, all were noticeably dark visually because they are either take place at night or there's a lot of fog or there's... Except at World's End is kind of a daytime hanging thing. But yeah. like I'm saying... Which is just dark. They, yeah, it's dark <laughs> metaphorically. Which And then they all carry that through. And maybe then in the new film, it doesn't quite have that ring as much. And although maybe you can make a case that a kid unable to see his dad, who's been cursed to be the captain of the Flying Dutchman, is a little ominous. But it's not, it's, re- it's, it's not really ominous. No. It's not like that. And so it, I think it has departed from that. And I'm not saying that that's good or bad. This is just a general take. I'm just telling you the differences that yeah. have kind of popped up. So that's not good or bad. I'm just saying it's kind of a departure from what the other films have gone through and maybe that's okay because i didn't have a problem with that scene at all oh no it was actually kind of neat because he wanted to see his dad so bad that he was willing to risk his own life yeah he actually tied himself to rocks yeah he bet that he was correct yeah on his calculations and where the ship would be so i thought it was kind of neat actually yeah i'm not saying that it was bad or anything i'm just kind of pointing out that there oh yeah i understand on that yeah and then i you know if we can move to like my big questions and thoughts so there really is a departure from some of the canon that has been established in the previous films and the expanded universe. For instance, Jack supposedly got the compass from Tia Dalma, this human form of Calypso. He collected his artifacts from voyages, not as tributes that we see. Yeah. Well, appears some of these things have been ditched with the new film. With a film franchise that has the potential to escalate or maybe where they want to escalate it to, say, a number 10 eventually... Keeping the canon in the storyline pretty isn't, well, it's important to do so. And it shouldn't be that difficult to adhere to those little facts that have actually been established in the previous movies. Yeah. Because the compass is given to him by the captain of the Wicked Wench, which becomes the Black Pearl. Right. And the tribute that everybody pays is his hat and the trinkets that go on his scarf and that he puts in his hair and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean, they really are kind of departing from some of that canon stuff. And there's actually more of that, but I just wasn't really going to go into it right now. But I thought it was interesting that they did that. I mean, there is a whole expanded universe out there, too, with books and things. Mm -hmm. And so, sometimes that they are going to differentiate the cinematic versus the expanded universe. But Disney is pretty good about trying to... Well, maybe not so much with some of the Star Wars stuff I guess they ditched. You know, they really are maybe differentiating that. Because sometimes there's two separate audiences. Although if you were to take a Venn diagram and put expanded universe versus cinematic and moviegoers, you know, I'm sure that the moviegoers are a much bigger audience than traditional expanded universe people. So I can see where they did that. But at least in the films, 
to ditch some of that canon is a little odd choice because it would be fairly simple maybe to try and come up with something else to put there. But it was kind of the way they explained it. You know, I know it's not it's not following the books and every in the everything or even else. In the previous movie because it was said that Tia Dalma gave the compass to Jack. Right. I found an explanation though there. Okay. At one point in time he lost it. Yeah. Okay. And then then Tia Dalma gave it to him. Gave it back to him? Right. So maybe that's it. So then. that's where I I mean I found that in the Pirates Wikia. I see. So he lost it. So There's an that assumption that at one point in time he lost it and Tia Dalma gave it to him. So gave it back to how him. does that work then? So if he the captain gave it to him and then he loses it later on and then yeah. Tia Dalma gives it back? Yeah. Okay, so... That's how that was kind of explained Okay, in so maybe that's how they're Pirates trying to explain that. And I have some yeah. information on the compass, or at least my own theories, because we did have some questions come up from some listeners about this. And it's actually been out there floating around, too, I think, on the internet lately, the people asking this question. But I have my own thing, and I haven't read any responses to it or any explanations. So this is my own fresh one. It could be mimicked out there, but this would be my own idea, and we'll touch on that in a minute. So that, yeah, that would be interesting. Then that's possible if that's the case. Cause that would be, that would explain why he had it and then he didn't have it. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I mean, it's always easy. They can always, well, sometimes it's easy. They can try and explain it elsewhere, but it does fly in the face. If you're not really a hardcore Pirates fan or you just remember that, you're like, well, that's weird because they just said he got it from Tia Dalman right. or Tia Dalma. So that, that's where it comes up. Cause I mean, he's just a kid there. Yeah. And he does say, or the captain says, what's he say, uh, respected or you something? You can't betray the compass. Yeah, you don't yeah. betray the compass. But, I mean, he's just a kid. He lost it. You know, it makes sense. He lost it in a battle or he lost it somewhere. It's possible. And then, he can, and then Tia Dalma gives it back. Um, as far as his trinkets, I know it doesn't follow everything else, but I kind of like the way they explained it because he keeps these trinkets all his life. You know what I mean? Yeah, they mean something to him. So if he was to receive them the first time he became captain, of course those trinkets would really mean something to him for him to keep them forever. I agree, and I haven't kept up on all the expanded universe to know like where he got each of these things from a voyage. Yeah, me either. But I agree with you. I like the fact, and because well, this is interesting because we have. This movie really makes a point to call out the whole tribute thing multiple times. It's actually like a small theme in the movie, which is weird because I've, we've never heard this idea of tribute yeah. in any of the other movies, as far as I can remember. No. Here, Jack is really obsessed with tribute. It's when they open the safe and nothing's in the safe while well, he pockets the one yeah. pieces of eight that's left in there. And then he demands everybody pay him tribute, the crew. Yeah. That's when they end up leaving. The crew finally is like, okay, this is, we're done here. You know, we tried to get a treasure. Now you want us to pay you. You don't even have a boat. You've lost your luck. We're out of here. When he is about to be guillotined, he then everybody saves the day. Yeah. He's demanding and negotiating with Gibbs to get a tribute for them to save him. And then they settle on, what, eight pieces of eight or something like he that? He settles on eight pieces yeah, of eight. He yeah, he calls it, he says, Gibbs says five eventually. He says, okay, it's settled eight. And then this whole tribute thing that comes up with the flashback when Salazar is telling the story, shows tribute yeah. that he's getting. And this is the first time he really sees that. So it really is this interesting idea in this film about tribute. 
And I wonder if that's because Jack is so hung up on it because he is so down on his luck that he's trying to retain any of that former glory that he had. Mm. Because his pinnacle of his career as a pirate is when he does get that first ship. That Wicked Winch becomes his Black Pearl. That becomes his freedom, his freedom of the ocean. He's able to do what he wants. And clearly he is just, just this brash young guy that's ready to ready to tackle the world he proved himself in battle against salazar yeah the feared most feared pirate hunter right off on the, the seas and then the crew just like blindly follow him he's lost that blindly just follow him and things will turn out yeah and the crew leaves so there is a lot of symbolism there and maybe that's why in his older age it's like the midlife crisis thing going on he's huh. trying to recover that he's trying to oh He's trying to justify to himself and to be in denial himself that the crew will still blindly follow him. And so he wants everybody to pay him tribute. Right. And that's probably stuff we can tackle when we get into a minute analysis. We can get really into that. And it's kind of interesting at the end of the movie, Gibbs turns to him and says, welcome back, Captain, or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I'm back. I have everybody following me again. It was like the high of Jack's life. It was like the time when he was a kid and got the Black Pearl. And then the end of this movie were like the highs of his life. That's right. He's back on the Black Pearl. He has his crew and they're all following him. And Yeah. And to just round out what I was saying, because I mentioned the tribute and then I kind of got sidetracked on some of that, is I too like the idea that he's not collecting these things just on his voyages. Or maybe he is some of them. But I like the idea that a lot of the precious ones that he has or that he keeps were given by his first crew because he saved the day. He proved himself. He proved that he is a worthy pirate and then everybody's going to follow him. I do like that storyline. I thought that was pretty cool. I did too. Other general takes. I did like the touching moments with Barbosa and Karina, especially his redemption or maybe it's offering of redemption at the end by sacrificing himself so that she may live. And this is after he reveals that he is the father that she knew, but or never knew of, but was searching for yeah, I think that's a I think that's a nice thing with Barbosa. The only thing is, I just feel that it's it's sad that he didn't tell her earlier. But it wouldn't it probably wouldn't work the same. Yeah, and that's the thing, but let me ask you this. Did this feel patched together and out of nowhere all of a sudden? That Barbosa had a child? Yeah. Did it feel a bit forced? Did it feel like the writers needed a hook to drive the emotional connection to Karina or why she's all of a sudden in the story? Mm, I didn't think about it that way, but... But kind of, right? It's yeah. all of a sudden, you've out of all these movies, you've never heard of Barbosa thinking... Or any or, of them having yeah, children. Yeah, and then all of a sudden this one pops up. Okay, it's not unreasonable that these guys that are visiting right. ports all over the place are going to have some children out there. Right. Reality check. What would have happened if Barbosa discovered that this is not his daughter, for instance? Okay, this isn't his daughter. Let's just pretend that. But he discovers that this is just the daughter of his true love. Barbosa, say, in this in this hypothetical scenario, because I know you like hypotheticals. You'll you'll like this one. What if Barbosa gave up on his love and traded it for the sea? Okay? He had this choice to make back when he was a younger guy. And he ends up choosing a pirate's life. He can stay at this port with this lady. I can't remember her name offhand. Something Smith, obviously, but I don't remember who it was. Margaret Smith? I think it was Margaret. Margaret Smith. But instead, he leaves and goes back to the ocean and leaves her. Okay? And then after all these years, he's regretted it. He's never 
He's never settled down. He never got married. He never had that family. So he's regretting giving up this kind of one life for the other, this family life for the life at the sea. And so even though he's been and he loves the sea, he's always had this small part of him that's regretted not settling down with his one true love that he found. Okay. And then maybe he even broke this lady's heart. And now Karina is his chance to choose a family instead of a life at sea. It's this second chance. And so it still would have worked and been touching if that was what was revealed on the ship or what he found out. Right. And then obviously we can fill in the remaining plot holes that come up if you were to change it around like that. But you get the general gist. Then it's maybe not so forced. It's like this chance encounter. But it avoids the step up on the chance encounter, this familial relationship coincidence cliche that pops up that we have. Like out of nowhere, he runs into his daughter. Yeah. Kind of deal. I mean, she is looking for the same thing that they are, the trident and all that. So, I mean, there is a connection and brings them together. But what if you think it wasn't his daughter? You don't like that idea. Mm -mm. How dare you? I like it being his daughter because it gives a story. Okay, well, he dropped his daughter off at the orphanage with that book. Yeah. And that book is the story. Yeah. I mean, everything in this movie is dependent upon that book. That's right. If that wasn't there, how would you explain that? Well, you'd obviously have the book, maybe. Maybe he left it. With, I said you got to fill in the remaining plot holes. I'm just <laughs> saying it wasn't his daughter. I'm not going to rewrite the whole script like right now, for God's daughter. sakes. I like it being his daughter. Okay, that's all I Because wanted. it gives a different look on Barbosa. Well, it does do that. But it, if it had been not his daughter, but it was just a second life. I mean, this is a second life, too, because he did leave Margaret to go back to the sea. Mm -hmm. But I was just saying, if it wasn't his daughter, if it didn't take that extra step to add on to it, would it have still worked if it was reminiscent of a life he could have had? That this is Margaret's ended up marrying this other guy, even though she really loved Barbosa and this is their child when that could have been his daughter. But he left. I don't know because if it worked the, the same, sea. though. Whatever. I think it's better with his daughter. You know what? I'm not going to bring up any more hypotheticals until I come Thank up with you. the next hypothetical. Arr! So you'll just have to live with that. I think it, it made it more touching. It's it's very touching and it gives that that part of Barbosa that we don't we don't see that deep into Barbosa no. until this movie. You know, you you actually see this part of Barbosa you've never seen before. That's right. And he actually risked his life or gave his life for her to save her. Yeah. You know, and I don't you it's just something. Oh, I mentioned that in the beginning that I thought that the scene was touching and it had this moment. Yeah. I was just wondering if it felt too forced or if there's ways that they can improve it. That's I all. I, I don't wondering. feel it's too forced. But okay, on to the next one. Then. I like Jeez. it. Is... I really like it. Actually, I really like that they made her Barbosa's daughter. Okay, I'll just stand over here and and sit with my because it gave me. I I love Barbosa anyway. Yeah, Barbosa is awesome, and it just gave me that. Extra look and extra care for Barbosa. My heart goes out to Barbosa more than it did before. Because well, I love Barbosa. He's awesome. I'm just saying this was the segment of thoughts and big thoughts and questions. So that's why I threw it out there. Okay. Then the next one really is, is this movie too big? Could it have... The action and the... No, not necessarily that. Because the action definitely I want to see. I want to see High Seas Battle. I want to see all that stuff. Could it have succeeded in the United States more than it has, say? Because it's definitely trailing international box office by quite a bit. And I think actually today it has crossed the $500 million mark globally. 
but the bulk of that is coming from international markets. Would it have been a bigger box office draw in the United States if it ditched the monstrous supernatural spectacle in favor of something that's more like back to skeleton pirate basics? Maybe just by having Salazar and Salazar's ghost pirates action. Or would that have been too much of a copycat format of Curse of the Black Pearl? Or is that okay? Because maybe it's entertaining and then you can, if you can just develop characters, it might be a, a spark the outrage out there because people are saying, this is just a, a freaking remake of mm. Star Wars A New Hope when they're talking about Force Awakens. Right. Is this just another remake of Curse of the Black Pearl? Instead of skeleton pirates, we have ghost pirates. But sometimes we like to go back. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm I saying. I think that the magical, a few of the magical things like the ship. And being able to eat other ships. And the sharks. That stuff I think were kind of a little over. Oh. I think with just the ghost pirates would have been good. And the, okay, the ship had to have some sort of magical thing because it, it couldn't sail if yeah. it didn't. But, you know, there's there's a little, a couple little things I think were kind of over the top. That's what I was wondering. If they had gotten back, and it doesn't have to be just ghost pirates, for instance. If they had gotten back to the magic of Curse of the Black Pearl, for instance. Because if you look at all the films, they have really kind of stepped things up as they've gone along. Yeah. You have to, as far as they're falling into this trap, and I, we've said this a couple of times somewhere, but maybe they fell into the trap that bigger is always better. And so then they have to keep one-upping themselves. As opposed to a universe, a Pirates of the Caribbean universe... That just borders on some of the supernatural, right. where not everybody knows that there's supernatural stuff. Because what we do get here in Curse of the Black Pearl, nobody knows that there's supernatural stuff going on. Right. This is a done deal. Supernatural is pretty much something people haven't heard of. We get it from Gillette, we get it from Norrington. Everybody doesn't believe what's going on. Barbosa, Elizabeth, they're all brand new to curses and this crazy, weird supernatural. And the stuff. only one you get in this movie that's like that. Is Karina. It's Karina. Yeah, which is Everybody odd. else believes in all this. Well, a lot of them have seen it. And even some of the... Which is interesting because Henry, when he's on the ship trying to warn them, like, don't go into the Devil's Triangle. That's bad news, which turns out to be bad news. Yeah. But the British Royal Navy has experience with crazy supernatural stuff going on. Right. What was it? Lord Cutler Beckett had an entire fleet witness... Calypso's giant maelstrom and this huge crazy stuff going on. Yeah. In this pirate battle with Davy Jones and all that kind of stuff. I mean, mind you, they weren't like right up close, but they could see that there's some crazy action going on. Right. And even the East India Trading Company was going after the heart of Davy Jones, which is supernatural by itself. Right. So this is established. So for people not to know that this kind of crazy stuff happens in this world, seems like it would be the minority. Right. Not the... or. People, that would be the majority, not the minority. And maybe Karina is just because she is a scientist is is disclaiming that because she hasn't seen any herself, which is good for science because she's she has to have that evidence for right. it. It just seems that this world should know about this stuff more so than what we get. And if they had taken it back or if it's always just kind of floated on the supernatural where you didn't have a lot of big stuff or that a lot of people are seeing it, then... You get that sense that, yeah, okay, boy, there's some crazy supernatural stuff and we're not expecting that. But it seems like a lot of people should know that there's supernatural yeah. stuff going on. 
So that gets back to the idea here. Is it, do we need bigger and bigger spectacles to satisfy this international market? Because we can't shrug off the international market anymore. Or is simpler the way to go? And that's on scale where we started with Aztec Curse Pirates was really the only supernatural thing. Right. Because then in Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, you end up getting Davy Jones. And then all of a sudden you get Calypso, but she's becoming more of this god and, you know, grows to be a giantess. And so you're getting some more of these really mythos elements that come in. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if, if, you know, you start adding too many elements to it that you start going over the top or you can't withdraw and you can't step back because you've established a universe where each movie has more and more things in it. You know, and then on Stranger Tides, you have mermaids and you have Fountain of Youth. And so you're always building on it. You have ghost pirates in this one. Poseidon's Trident, an island map of the stars that no one can read. And yeah. so are you going too far or do you need to just scale that back? But then again, is the U.S. audience wanting something that's a bit scaled back for their swashbuckler now? But the international market, mm. which is doing really well, wants that big spectacle, wants all those effects. Yeah. And so is there now a battle? How do you find that, that common ground be, that'll satisfy both the U.S. and the international market, maybe when it comes to swashbuckler or Pirates of the Caribbean? That I don't know. Yeah. There was also a lot of symbolism, and since I just mentioned some of this, that I can't wait to discuss one day when we get to the minute-by-minute minute breakdown of the movie. And I'll just touch on it here, just like a little hair, a little bit. But I was seeing a myth versus science versus religion thing going on that was in this. Things that really happen in the film, they're kind of pointing to a lot. There's, there is a lot of symbolism across all of that. And I'll leave it at that for now. But even a listener and pirate fan, Spencer, made a reference to the parting of the seas Moses style in one of his yeah. notes to us. And I and I walked away from that as well. So this really does provide a great, I think, analysis that we'll be able to talk about when we do our minute-by-minute minute breakdown of the movie eventually. There were also, since we're talking big questions and thoughts, there were co-directors for this movie that are maybe newcomers to the like mega blockbuster genre. Did we need to get Gore Verbinski back in the seat or have a blockbuster director at the helm? Or does a movie really does it really need new co-directors as opposed to a single director in charge? Because there's two guys that we're directing. So does that ensure that there's a more cohesive vision and one that limits compromise to ensure your vision, whether good or bad, you know, something that comes to fruition on the silver screen, but at least you can own it yourself. If you have two directors, are you then co-managing the movie? And does that, does that not come out as cohesive as if well, you had just one person that was really kind of at the top as opposed to trying to maybe bring two visions together. Yeah, this Even is, if they are with one person, you have that one vision, you have that one way the movie is going to go, and that's, you know, how they want it. And But with two people, you have your, you know, you're not always going to gr agree on everything. Yeah. So it's not going to be as seamless. It's that's not going to be wondering. that one vision. Yeah, what would have happened if it was just one director at the helm? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. And, Obviously, there's good or bad movies, so I don't know. I'm just curious because yeah. I don't often see a lot of movies that have two directors sitting at the at the forefront right. there. So that's that's just why I brought it it's up. Kind of interesting. Some other questions: Why was Salazar cursed? I mean, we have the mechanism, but not the explanation as to why he became cursed and filled with rage in the Devil's Triangle, or why the compass was the key to releasing him from the dark. You know, kind of in that yeah, situation. Yeah, they didn't explain that. That we don't know, or at least that's what I was left wondering. We get that he was 
really ticked off at Jack and just filled with rage. Right. But when he gets into the Devil's Triangle, everything explodes. That rage kind of all seeps into him. Yeah. We see all that kind of lava type fire go into the ship and go into him. But we don't really get the why, that connection of why that happened when he went there. And why the compass is the actual thing that would release him. Yeah, you don't have that explanation of the Devil's Triangle. Exactly. And then the last question I want to mention that I don't even think we have a reasonable answer to or any answer for that is why does Will have barnacles on him? As the captain of the Dutchman and doing his job, ferrying those people and those souls, right? Yeah. He ends up with barnacles. So he he resurfaces with his son and we see him encrusted with all this stuff, right? Yeah. Well, not totally. Not totally, but yeah. So now in At World's End, the crew that were becoming part of the ship... And taking on properties of sea life were restored with the new captain when yes. Davy Jones was eliminated because now they're going to actually do their job. Right. Because they're fulfilling their duties and transporting souls should Will be encrusted with barnacles. And that was kind of my, my question on that. I mean, technically, Will should not be barnacled if we go by the lore of the Captain of the Dutchman kind of deal. Yeah. From what was established in the Pirates of the Caribbean universe. But biologically, it does make sense for me. But I don't know if biology holds up to the crew of the Dutchman. I mean, there's a lot of things that biology doesn't hold up to in the Pirates of the Caribbean universe. Is that one thing? I mean, because it does make sense with some reality. For him being in water, underwater so long. Yeah, because yeah. barnacles will attach themselves to ships and to whales. And so if Will is spending all or most of his time submerged, I mean, it is practical that some barnacles would attach right. to, to him or try to attach. But Will should be able to prevent this or remove the hitchhikers. I mean, scratch those damn things off. Right. When they start, you know, you feel something there, you can get rid of it. Don't let them just start growing there. I mean, this kind of gets back to the canon question again that we were talking about earlier. Some of that stuff. Yeah. What would I really want in the movie? I mean, we can kind of move to that and start to try and wrap some of the stuff up. A few things I would have liked to have seen is more early Jack Sparrow exploits. Maybe that's a build up to the big Silent Mary pirate battle sequence we get. I love that reflection and story element that we get. I think I wanted more of it. Yeah. Jack was so very brash, and I mentioned that. And that will make for a great discussion one day. I think when we talk about like a comparison of young Jack versus his evolution to a beat-down Jack and then maybe his restoration. A prequel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Well, of Jack's yeah. life before the it's, curse. Yeah, exactly. Something to give us more... I guess it would just be another story. Or it could even be but, less... Something supernatural. That, yeah. It could just be more pirate swashbuckling. A story that tells us the life of Jack before the curse. Because he really was this confident, just, I'm going to take on the world kind of guy. Yeah. And that is really crazy. And that would be cool to see it, the evolution from that stage to what we get in Black Pearl. But if you don't, because the, Bla- the curse of the Black Pearl is the first actual supernatural thing. So if you do a movie that shows the life of Jack Sparrow... At least in the cinematic universe, because there is expanded universe right, stuff yeah. with that. Yeah. I mean, if you do a movie that shows the life of Jack Sparrow before The Curse of the Black Pearl, you wouldn't, you couldn't really put any supernatural stuff in there because The Curse of the Black Pearl was the first supernatural. Nobody knows about it. You know, it's the first thing. So would it, would it be stand up to the rest of the movies? Exactly. If you I don't, don't put any supernatural I don't know. In I there. mean, you could do it where you walk the line or there is supernatural, but you can't really 
say for certain that that was supernatural oh, or not. Oh, more mystery type. Yeah, you'd have to leave yeah. it more of a mysterious. Like, I think that was something that was supernatural, yeah. but you don't really know. And then maybe that plays into later stuff in the movies. Yeah, kind of Because the- obviously the world does have supernatural that people just on a general basis didn't know about it. Because Aztec gods were around, they cursed the treasure. Yeah. There's well, yeah, Davy Jones, the- there's Calypso. But the, the person, the eighteenth average 18th century human at this time... Hadn't been experiencing a bunch of supernatural stuff until we really get the Black Pearl thing right. going on. It goes back to the devil. You could show the devil's triangle even and explain it. Yeah. In that movie. You know, so we get more of an understanding of it. Yeah, because you, you could even have some of those stories. And that would be where you'd have to have dead men tell no tales. Because Salazar, obviously, when Jack was young, was imprisoned in the devil's triangle. So we're not saying that there was no supernatural, but the person just, yeah. most people didn't know about supernatural. So it was out there. You'd have to leave it as explained or some incidences. So when the story gets out, then people are questioning it like Mulroy and Murtaugh did about the Black Pearl. No, that's not true. Yeah. Yes, it is. So there's still, there's this debate on it, but right. not that it was a fact. Right. So take the opening bank heist down a single notch is one of the things I'd like to see. This is typical swashbuckler comedy territory, so bravo for including it kind of deal. But maybe it would have worked for me a little bit better had it not been the entire bank being dragged through town. Yeah. But just the vault. That's it. Maybe just a little smaller. So that was just one little thing I had. And then I would have also liked to take the island map of the stars, the map that no man can read, and Poseidon's tried it down a notch as well. What if it was eliminated altogether? I know that's getting pretty crazy. But this gets back to my simple, maybe better premise. Yeah. But that leads to the question again, would that drive international box office and make the movie a financial success? So those are some of the kind of what would I maybe want to see or how would that go? And maybe they tried that and it just wasn't working out. But if they had taken that down just a notch, kind of like the Aztec curse did, then maybe that for me would have just been a little bit better. The question of the compass is a big one. And this is... You know, where I attempt to come back and circle back to what I was saying about the compass and my, my hypothesis for this is that we have gotten from multiple listeners and even it popped up elsewhere on the internet, I said. And I believe I really do have an explanation for this, at least a justification that does not regard the canon. So betraying the compass releases your biggest fears. So Salazar knows that the key to his release is the compass from Jack. Right. Salazar is Jack's biggest fear. He gets the compass. Then... It releases Salazar, which is what we see when he gives up the compass. He betrays the compass for a bottle of rum. It releases Salazar. Right. My theory is that in order to betray the compass, you have to willingly give it up. You have to trade it away, for instance, for that bottle of rum. So when Jack is stolen by Lord Beckett or gives it to Will or Elizabeth to use or for somebody else to hold... Or, for instance, like what you were talking about, that he somehow loses it. Yeah. And then Tia Dalma gives it back to him. That is not really betraying the compass because he's not willingly giving it up. Right. He's not doing that. It just happens that it was stolen or something. So he's not making that willing, that free choice to actually say, I'm departing my relationship or ending my relationship with the compass. Right. Stolen was not his doing and letting someone else borrow hold it. Say it's like with this request that it be returned still keeps you in good favor with this kind of directional device. That's what I'm kind of getting at. Thus, when he gives it to the bartender, it was a conscious decision. and was a what decision? A conscious decision that he would not be seeing it again. As far as the compass was concerned, at least. 
I got the idea that he was going to try to steal it back. Well, he may have tried to steal it back, but he still consciously gave right. it away. So even if he stole it back, it would still have unre- well, it would have still released Salazar. Right. He just wasn't thinking about that. But this is where the plot would then break down because if it had to be willingly given up, then simply finding Jack as Salazar wanted, you would have had to trick or to get him to relinquish the rights of the compass to free himself. So stealing it from Jack wouldn't have worked. So I don't know. We don't really see how Salazar was going to try and get the compass from Jack. Yeah. Because he was trying to find Jack to get the compass because that's the whole key. So that's all I'm saying with the compass is I think that it has to be willingly given up and then they could fill in the plot holes later if Salazar was actually going to try and trick him to get the compass back or to get give up the compass. So then we could have figured that out. But I think that's how the compass works to betray it. But if if Jack never gave up the compass, Salazar would never have been able to get after get That's right. Get out of Devil's trapped. Triangle. He'd be trapped yeah. inside that cave. Yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Some of the things I did like and this is building on the stuff that we already talked about, is the humor and euphemisms that make a real return. So it's the <laughs> yeah. little things that permeate pirate culture. It will make a good show. <laughs> yeah, the Toggery references that inspired the ones that pop up in our own show. And that's the fun stuff with pirates. Yeah. And they have that kind of stuff. There's also this really cool full circle treatment in the movie. Young Jack begins his career as captain without a hat and ends up getting one as a tribute from a crew yes. member when he gets the soon-to-be renamed Black Pearl. Dead Men Tell No Tales ends with Jack and a callback to the horizon that he said in Curse of the Black Pearl. But Jack is once again back on the Black Pearl. He finally gets his ship back and now he is without his legendary hat. We are back where we started when we see Jack as a young, smug, and confident pirate. Jack is back at the helm of the Black Pearl. Yeah. But now he doesn't have a hat, which is exactly how he started with the Black Pearl. Without a hat. Without a hat when when he tricked Salazar. So is this the symbol of Jack's character returning to his roots and getting that confidence and luck back? That's what I was left with. Is yeah, that is yeah. that what's going on here? Yep. Or did he simply just lose his hat? No, he, he's <laughs> got the black pearl back and he is back to the old confident, lucky Jack. Yeah. I mean, if it was really just the fact that he lost his hat and there was no symbolic return to form... Then what I would have really liked to have seen is that the hat magically blows onto the deck, Indiana Jones style. I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark where the hat just happens to blow to his feet without any reason. He loses his hat. I think maybe it was a truck thing or something. I don't remember what it was. But he's standing there and then the hat just kind of magically blows back to his feet. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been awesome. An Indiana Jones (laughs) moment where he gets his hat back. Not to mention again... But I like the score, the costumes, the effects, the underwater scenes, the sets, the pirate ships. The backbone of the story element was good. And perhaps I will embrace my fear of change and come to like the evolution of Jack's character. I mean, it does mimic reality. And it is for part of the movie. And then he kind of starts to to get that back. So, I mean, there really is a good story character element of Jack returning to that confident, lucky person that he's been. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'll embrace that after... You've kind of talked me into it. So when Barbosa gives his life for his daughter, do you feel that Barbosa really died there? That is actually a good segue into what I wanted to talk about as we're wrapping things up on our Dead Men Tell No Tales review bonus episodes because I had to throw in like a plug in there at the end for people that are already listening. But this plays into the end credits. What I was really going to say, the end credits scene. 
And it's amazing how many people don't sit, stay to the end credits. And yeah. I've seen a lot of people complaining about that just on social media. Like, what? There was an end credit? Well, did you see the other people sticking around? They're not just sitting there to see credits roll. It's the thing. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing now. Just check on that. There's even an app that'll tell you if there's an end credit. Get the app. Check it out. And then you can decide to stay or not. But anyways, end credit. You got to stay. And we really can't wrap this show up without talking about the end credit scene. And I'm not going to rehash the entire setup, but Will Turner believes he hears a noise. They're sleeping. Elizabeth yeah. and Will. A return of Davy Jones. Tentacle, claws and all. This kind of shadow that we're seeing yeah. on Will's bed. Will and Elizabeth's bed. But then a Will appears to wake from this kind of finger quote dream or this nightmare. And then he sees nothing there. Yeah. Here's some noises and then he wakes up. Oh, okay, maybe it was just a dream. Ah, oh, just my imagination kind of deal. But on the ground, which he doesn't see, are barnacles and water. So something was there. Yes. And he just missed it. And like I said, it had the shadow of Davy Jones. Not the return to human form Davy Jones, but the tentacled dude that he was with right. his crab claw and leg and all that. Now, does this mean that the next villain in Pirates of the Caribbean 6 is a potential return of Davy Jones? Perhaps he's just not the captain of the Flying Dutchman, so maybe he's come back. The Dutchman always needs a captain, right? They always need to have him yes. come back. So is Davy Jones coming back? But then maybe it's the idea that Jones survived the fall into the maelstrom thanks to maybe Calypso. She had some love for him still. She didn't let him die when he fell in there. Mm -hmm. And so maybe Davy Jones didn't die. And now he's returning for revenge against Will, who's the one who stabbed his heart. Right? And yeah. he's the one who sent him over, basically, when Will was dying. But... Do we want to see Davy Jones again? And I'm not sure that we want to see a return of that particular villain. Do we want to see that again, that he was in already two movies? Davy Jones, the tentacled dude? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I don't know yet either. And I guess I'd have to see where they're going with that. Yeah. And then the question too is, why would he be fishy when... All curses were The broken. will became the new captain. Yeah. And then they everybody should have returned to their form. Unless for some reason this particular curse... Didn't break at the time because a Calypso intervened or maybe, yeah, I don't know. Or because he was the one who was responsible for not ferrying the souls like he was supposed to do his service. So I don't know. But should he return to human form? And that's what I was left wondering. But another possible explanation is, and this gets to your question. You thought I forgot about your question? No, you're stealing my thunder. Okay, but okay. go no, for it. No, you no, go for it. No. You say it then. You're the one who brought it up. Go for it. I said, are we to assume that Barbosa has returned to Captain the Flying Dutchman, but is not ferrying the souls? That's what I was wondering, too. So I guess we're you on the same page. You got that from me, by the way. I didn't get that oh, from yeah, you. Oh, yeah. I said it yesterday. No. Oh, yeah. I did. Well, then I had it in my own mind. Uh -huh. No. Yeah. You're saying your implanted memories in my mind? How dare you? I said it yesterday. I yeah. don't remember you. I know. You don't remember me. You never remember me. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. What are you, what are you doing in my house? <laughs> Get out of the studio. So what do you think? Well, I think it's possible that Barbosa. Because I could see Barbosa not ferrying the souls. Will did because Will is that type of person. But would Barbosa have to... I don't think Barbosa would have to return. And there's no way that Jeffrey Rush or Barbosa would want to be... Kind of this fish person, you know, this octopus head, this part thing where you can't really see. Because right. Barbosa is in his facial characteristics. I mean, this guy's eyes, his mouth, his facial expressions are an entity among itself. 
And that's part of his great acting. So to cover that up with special effects, I don't know if they would actually do that. But we don't see Barbosa die. Right. He did go into this after the trident was broken and the curses were broken. And because the Dutchman always needs a captain, did Barbosa, as he was dying, accept that fate of being the captain of the Dutchman and therefore he wouldn't really die and he would just have to ferry the souls. But this is what I'm thinking is maybe the reason that we see the tentacled shadow of Davy Jones is because any other shadow would be almost impossible to identify as a Mm, person. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to equate it to, say, Captain Barbosa, just a shadow. Right. There'd be no way that you could make it so distinct that you go, that shadow's of Captain Barbosa. Right. That is of Lord Cutler Beckett or any of these other characters or Blackbeard. Davy Jones with his tentacle face yeah. is the only one that you could really go, that's Davy Jones. So is it just possible that this shadow is representative of the captain of the Dutchman? Mm. And Davy Jones is emblematic of that curse and is simply, it's like a symbolic clue that the Dutchman or Barbosa is coming back as the captain because Will was kind of having this reality versus dream thing. So he right. was thinking some of that so maybe it's just partially because he was sleeping at the time that's right so maybe that's just what it is it's just the idea that the captain of the dutchman is coming back or barbosa is coming back or what if it's possible that the curse was not exactly broken with will as the captain since the dutchman always needs a captain so maybe it's coming back that he needs to fulfill his duties maybe temporarily it broke but the whole tentacle davy jones look Yeah. Because that was what happens when you weren't doing your job. Right. You start to take on properties of the ship or sea life. Yeah. You start to lose who you really are. Right. Is that a dream because this trident temporarily broke the the service or the curse that Will had? But somebody has to. And somebody has to do that. And because he was the last captain, he still might be the captain. Mm. That it's now saying, hey... You're not doing your duties on the Dutchman. The Dutchman always needs a captain. You're the last one. We don't have another one. And so now he's dreaming that, well, this curse, this locker kind of curse is coming upon him saying, Mm. you're not doing your duties. And if you don't get back out on that ship, this is what's in store for you. Because there's no new heart as far as we know. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So that's what I have. It could be Barbosa. It could be the return of Davy Jones. It could be symbolic of will or barbosa being that captain now i guess it's kind of up in the air but there are screen stories in the works for pirates of the caribbean 6 and if it continues to be the big push or box office draw in the international market then we'll get another one and we'll see where that goes yes and maybe it'll be interesting to see if that means elizabeth and will are actually going to have a bigger role in the sixth one as they continue to transition the characters out right the old for the new generation Were you happy to see Elizabeth? I was. I thought it was good that they brought her back, but it was only, I figured that it was just going to be a snippet. Yeah. But I was, like I said, I think that there's a lot of, the story wasn't about Elizabeth and Will. That was just kind of a sideline. Yeah. Uh, I think that if they're using them as a jumping point to the next film to kind of center around them and then continue to transition them out, you know, to the sun and to Karina, then that's okay. Yeah. But I didn't have any real big, feelings either way except that i'm glad that they came back i always like to see those things when they make a nod to the previous ones right as as opposed to this completely going away because you can't have will coming back on land without elizabeth there it would have looked weird if she didn't come out to visit him or if it's been 
10 years. You know, she she had to be there. Otherwise, it's like, well, that's weird. It was Why like a last not? minute decision for her to come on the yeah. show. Yeah. I think it would have been weird if they didn't do that. Yeah. Because then it's like, Will just got freed and you're not coming down. Right. I mean, for God's sakes, your son Henry is waiting out there. Yeah. I think you can go down. You can take some time away from your reading, Elizabeth. <laughs> And just go down and visit Will, who's just come off the Dutchman after all these years. How about you get down there? Just make the little effort. Just make it happen, lady. See? That's all she had to do. Since there's probably a few other in-credit hypotheses or theories out there. Well, hypotheses. We should say hypotheses because Karina, in honor of Karina, the science woman, she would not say theory because theory has a whole different meaning in science than hypothesis. So there's probably a few other hypotheses out there that... Maybe I can come up with, or maybe I can't think of right now. And we can leave that for another time. Or if you want to share your theories, and, oh, damn it, I said theories. If your hypotheses with us on Pirates of the Caribbean 6 and the end credit scene, shoot us a note at podcast at blackpearlminute.com or give us a call at 8637-PIRATE or even hit us up on social media. And for me, that's our breakdown and review. What do you think? Yeah, I think we... Did pretty good, actually. Maybe went a little too far. (laughs) So I urge everyone to go see the film, support the movie so we can get another one, and maybe we can actually end things back to basics. Jack back at his normal character, the curse we all love kind of deal, the swashbuckler action, and of course, let us know what you think of the new movie. And you can join our Facebook group, the Facebook group Cursed Listeners Crew, and we can have some of those discussions there. But yeah, that's all I got. And then I guess we'll have to wait for the full breakdown of Dead Men Tell No Tales years from now when we finally get to that movie. (laughs) That would be season five. So we'll be back on Monday with Minute 102 of The Curse of the Black Pearl on the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Until then, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. Now get me my grog. What's that, Banjo? Heather's been drinking at the Faithful Bride Tavern? Take me to her, buddy. Blimey. Passed out in the mud with the pigs? Again? This sty is your second home. Heather, wake up! The show's done and you're supposed to tell everyone where they can find us, where the after party is, and how their voicemail may be featured on the show. Banjo, get me a bucket. Hey, Scallywags, while Banjo's getting some water to wake up Heather, it's time I say thanks for listening. If you like the show, give us a review on iTunes. It helps us out and we greatly appreciate it. Have a question or comment? Give us a call at 8637-PIRATE. We just might play your voicemail on the show. You can also give us a shout at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. And don't forget to join the post-episode brawls on Facebook and Twitter. If you're interested in our best of clips, you can find us on SoundCloud. All the links are at blackpearlminute.com. It's that easy.